Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the wins for Democrats in Ohio, Kentucky, and Virginia, which augurs well for Democrats in 2024, in contrast to the poor poll numbers of the leader of the party, President Joe Biden. Joining us to examine the successful narrative that resulted in a 13-point victory that countered the lies and dirty tricks of the Ohio Republicans is David Pepper, who served as chairman of the Democratic Party of Ohio from 2015 to 2021 and is the author of a number of books, including A Simple Choice, The Voter File, and Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. Then we'll look further into the politics of abortion, which will surely play a role in 2024 and already appears to be benefiting the Democrats beyond the issue of abortion itself in the broader sense that a large majority of Americans don't want a tyranny of the minority infringing on their freedom, imposing their religious dogma in the name of religious freedom. Joining us is Amanda Marcotte, a feminist author, blogger and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America and Truth Itself. And we will discuss her article at Salon, Voters Aren't Fooled by Republican Lies on Abortion and Democrats Are Benefiting at the Ballot Box. Then finally, we'll examine how much Biden is losing the Arab-American vote because of his stance on the war in Gaza and the display of Islamophobia in the House, with the censure of the only Palestinian-American in Congress. Joining us is Wajahat Ali, a New York Times contributing writer based in Washington, D.C., a columnist at the Daily Beast, and the co-host of the Democracy-ish podcast. His latest book is Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is David Pepper, who served as chairman of the Democratic Party of Ohio from 2015 to 2021, and is the author of a number of books, including A Simple Choice, The Voter File, and Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Pepper. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And the Democrats did incredibly well last night in Ohio, in Virginia, and in Kentucky, and it's a bit of a disconnect, isn't it? You get this poll from the New York Times saying that Trump's ahead in five of the six uh, swing states, beating Biden. So where Biden poll numbers don't look good, the Democrats are looking good. So how do you, how do you explain that? Well, one, I just think that, to, to me, the whole idea that we're, we're, we're doing that poll only three days before state-level elections is once again, sort of a confirmation that we, we're just not looking at politics the right way. It's the state level of politics that's determining so much. And the election results at the state level right now are a better reading of things than national polls a year out when one side's in the middle of a primary and the other isn't. Uh, we, th- what happened last night where Ohio voted resoundingly for women's right to choose, Virginia uh, similarly, bigger wins in New Jersey than expected, closer loss in Mississippi, Kentucky governor winning a Democrat. That tells us a lot more about what's actually happening, because that's real energy. That's real voting. Um, and that extends a year now. We're beginning almost more than a year ago in August in Kansas with that special election over a woman's right to choose again. And then November, where you saw major Democratic wins, and then a Wisconsin win in April. What happened last night isn't isolated. It's a it's a winning streak that, by the way, isn't only a Democratic winning streak. It's sort of a democracy winning streak. Um, last night was not just Democrats voting to protect a woman's right to choose. It was Republicans voting for it as well. 
just like in August when they tried to change the rules midstream of how we amend constitutions in Ohio, it was a multipartisan rejection of that idea. So something deeper is happening than any one-day poll is going to capture, and it's happening sort of below the level of federal elections, which is how most of the national media thinks about it. So I think what happened last night reflects something that that is um, interesting, important, and the other big thing about it, completely counter-cyclical. This is last this year. Elections in the midterms are usually lost by the party that controls the White House. But we now see an entire year where the opposite has been happening. So this is defying the usual pattern of American politics. And, and that way, it also is very uh, surprising in a way, but telling. Right. Well, the vote in Ohio, I think, the, what, 13 points ahead? And that was in spite of the fact that the Republican Secretary of State, who's an anti-abortion zealot, framed the ballot in a very partisan way. So it would indicate to me that the messaging of the Democrats in Ohio was was able to overcome the extent to which the Republicans tried to stack the vote against them. Yeah, I mean, what what happened was, uh, yeah, what, what, he, what, what people beyond Ohio may not or may, may have seen in the end, I think people saw it, this became, again, not just a battle about reproductive freedom, but democracy itself. I mean, they were weaponizing every tool that they are given because they control government against the people's rights here to, to run a petition drive and have a vote. They changed the ballot language. They tried to change the rules of, of how you win, make it 60%, not 50%. They engaged in nonstop sort of Orwellian disinformation, not just, again, the campaign, but government itself. And so Ohioans last night, voted to secure a new right in their constitution, the right to make your own reproductive decisions. But we also overcame all those tactics in a way that was once again a vote for democracy itself. And that, I think, is a really important part of the win, that it was, it was in spite of all these anti-democratic tactics that I didn't know until Election Day would be so overcome and so decisively. So, yeah, it was a really disturbing last year as we saw all these efforts to subvert democracy, and, and the good news is last night the, they all failed. Um, and, and it was messaging, and, and one of the, going back to your, you mentioned messaging, I think at some point voters in Ohio and other states, I hope as well, they are seeing this as an attack on fundamental freedom, you know, a freedom to have your vote count as it used to in a democracy, freedom to make your own decisions and not have government infringe upon them. And that's one reason I think you are seeing, you know, Democrats saying we support that freedom, but also Republicans in even conservative areas saying, hey, get out of our business. And we want our vote to count here, too. And so I think this deeper trend is driven a lot by this sense that some in government are at this point attacking freedom itself. And, and that has real repercussions for people's lives. So do you think that what happened in Ohio with the Democratic messaging could translate nationwide, particularly in 2024, in the sense that what's really happening here is a tyranny of the minority, that the Republicans are a minority yeah. party and that they shut down the majority with all kinds of machinations and tricks and anti-democratic practices? I do. I mean, I think, again, I think we saw that play out. And one example, when... Um uh, Governor Shapiro won over uh, Mastriano in Pennsylvania. It was a very similar rejection of an election denier, an extremist on all these issues, uh, and a mainstream candidate winning decisively. Um, this is similar. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of lessons to take from this, which is that states that are swing states or even lean a little red like Ohio, they may they may have, uh, you know, different leanings, but they all they are rejecting this new strand of sort of anti-democracy extremism that's become the really the, the central driving principle of the Republican Party. And I think to the extent that the new speaker is from that far right extreme, to the extent that Donald Trump personifies it, I think, you know, these states are ones that have shown they're, they're really not not um, embracing this level of extremism. I mean, we even saw it last November in Ohio where J.D. Vance did far worse that he won because it was a bad year overall, but he did far worse winning in low, you know, mid-single digits than 
a, a candidate for governor on the Republican side who was who felt like the old, more establishment Republican. So I think the brand that they have embraced, like we've talked about the dog catching the car, they've embraced a brand that I think is very risky and dangerous for them long term. It's just too much for the American people to take. And last night was clearly too much for Ohioans to take. And David Pepper, I mentioned the disconnect between the Democrats having a good night in Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio, uh, and elsewhere last night, and Biden's poll numbers. What do you think Biden can learn from last night, particularly in Ohio? And I mean, should he sort of come out fighting? I think that, I think, the, what is it, two-thirds of the American people don't want either Trump or Biden. One they yeah. think is too crazy, and one they think is too old. Uh, you know, I, I will. I had a guy who you probably talked to before. No, Simon Rosenberg on my call last yeah. night. I had an election, and he walked through how. Let's take a step back. That was one poll in the last month. There have been dozens of polls. Biden was ahead in more than than Trump was. Um, I don't. I don't think you ignore bad news, but you also don't don't uh, hit the panic button over one poll, and you do recognize that last night's results tell you as much as any poll. But uh, if I'm Joe Biden, if I'm an insider of that campaign, I certainly pay attention to any data point. And I think what what they should do when they look at that and they look at last night is see, well, you know, however we are doing in this head-to-head, whatever the polls show, we know on the issues that we're way ahead, even in states like Ohio. So how can we better translate the fact that we actually are with the people on these big issues far more than Trump and on democracy itself? far more than Trump, how do we translate that advantage into actually benefiting your own candidacy? And I think they need to figure out, you know, many ways to do that. Uh, one, one way that I very much um, feel strongly about is, is, and you see this with these wins in Kansas and, and Ohio, we have to have a broader approach to politics than only running in, in the handful of states that everyone says are the swing states. Because last night in Ohio and last year in Kansas shows us these extremist state houses are not in the mainstream of these states. And when we don't run in these places and we don't get out beyond a few cities and suburbs to more rural areas, we really are giving away an advantage that we're gaining because they have so far moved to the right. So I think that that the more in the next year that that Joe Biden and members of his, his team and campaign can get out and not just go to the pe- the places that obviously are the swing areas, but get beyond that. I just think that makes for a much stronger message. It makes for a much stronger infrastructure. It narrows your margins. And in some places, you might win where you otherwise wouldn't because you haven't really tried. So I think that, you know, we have in Ohio, literally, I mean, this is true in a lot of states. The Republicans are taking credit for the Ohio econ- economic recovery. And if you don't campaign in that state, even though... You're the one who did it. You know, let's say Biden and, and the ec- economic infrastructure, CHIPS Act, the other things they've done. If you're not in the state, the other side's going to take credit for all the good news you created. So to even be on message means to even you know, if you get out to these states, you could be on message and talk about the things you did and stop letting Republicans take credit for things that you did. So I just think it speaks to needing to get out there and, and go beyond what too often is a far too narrow sliver of places that people think will decide the election and thinking that doing anything but that is a waste. I actually think that the lesson of the last 20 years is if we allow so much of America to never hear from us, things get worse, things get more extreme, and we make it harder and harder to win because we have such a narrow field that, we have to, that we're playing on. So I think it speaks to getting out beyond and connecting on the issues that clearly the Republicans are, are not in tune with the people on So in terms of messaging, though, David, given that Trump is an autocrat and a kleptocrat and that the new Republican House Speaker is a theocrat, and in the last week or so there have been alarming articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post about Trump's plans on the very day after his inauguration, on day one, if he gets a second term, he'll in- invoke the Insurrection Act and basically turn this country into a, a fascist state with him the dear leader. Is, was there any inkling of those kind of messaging in, in the Ohio victories? And is that a model, a possible model for how to win over the, 
particularly this affected Republicans and independents in these red states? I mean, to some degree, I think what's happened in Ohio, one reason that this happened last night is Ohioans have started to see through what is a very corrupt Ohio government and Ohio State House. And corrupt, not only having been convicted in some cases of bribery and going to jail, but corrupt as in the, the government itself is being put to end that are purely raw ideology and not what government's about. And I think that's a backdrop that makes people not trust what these people are saying anymore. Um, I think the best lesson from places like Ohio and other states in the last year is to make those points. But I think if you don't connect them up to the issues that people are worrying about in their day-to-day life, some will respond to that argument. Uh, let's be clear. Some people, that will be why they vote against Trump. But there are others who their lives are complicated or difficult, and, and they may not be worried about that, or they may not know who to believe, because that stuff sounds so outrageous. Could it really be true? Uh, and that's where I'd say the best approach is to translate the, the, the lack of democracy they want to create with the everyday outcomes that that voter will feel. And Dobbs has created that connection. You know, why are they attacking democracy? It's to lock into place abortion bans that most people don't want, but you will live with if we don't have a democracy and they get away with it. So I think connecting it to what is the ultimate outcome on your life if democracy sinks? Um, and it could be all sorts of things, but, but, but right now, obviously, that Dobbs connection and the abortion bans that are sending rape victims from Ohio to other states, that becomes so real to people that I think it, it makes the, it sort of, clo- it ends the sentence with not just democracy is being attacked, but it's being attacked in a way that you will feel personally in your life in very painful and disturbing ways. So I think that's a one-two combination that's, that's necessary. But do you think, though, that this strategy that you're talking about, the, the local state strategy, could overcome another disconnect that's very puzzling, which is that all the economic indicators are that this is a, a great economy for a president to run on. If you go back to Carville's, right. Carville's adage, it's, it's the economy, stupid. And yet polls tell us that people aren't feeling as good. We know with, a, with low unemployment, uh, inflation coming down, and GDP figures that any politicians would love to be able to run on, and yet somehow Biden is not getting the credit that is due, and yeah. people aren't feeling good about the economy. Well, I think a lot. I mean, I don't want to act like there's the magic solution to that. We are in such a polarized media environment. We're in such a polarized moment that people are sort of screening uh, so much based on po- politics. But I do think. The fact that we only, you know, I always give this example, 50% of the Tennessee Republicans in that state house that got so infamous early this year were not opposed last year. Mike Johnson was not opposed for state house ever until he ran for Congress. And then he had blowaway races. You know, 60% of Oklahoma Republicans are unopposed. When we are leaving so much of America in, in, to be basically one party rule, one-party messaging during campaigns because we're not even opposing. All they're hearing is the, the worst news that makes Biden look bad. We're not even in the argument. And I think one reason why those polls may show that is all they're hearing is from one side because we're not even making a case. So, and, and if there is good news on the economy, which there is all over, it's the Republicans in these places that say it's because of what they did. You would think if you watched the lieutenant governor of Ohio who's running for governor, you would think that the very good economic news in Ohio, and there is some top-line economic good news, you would think that he was the reason for it. You would not even know there was a national policy whatsoever that led to infrastructure or led to anything else. Because if you're not running in these places, you're basically letting the ones – they take credit for all the good news. And blame Joe Biden for bad news, often when they're the ones who cause the bad news. So, so I really do. Um, I think running everywhere and being a 50-state party where you're in not just suburbs and cities that you think you're going to win, but you're making the case in other areas you might lose, but you'd rather have a message than not. I think running in all these places does give you a much more robust across-the-country message that also might overall, over time, change that impression. 
Right, and um, what, Republicans, what the Republicans, yeah. to every last man and woman, voted against all of the Biden's um, infrastructure and energy Absolutely. transitions. And if you were running, if you were running in, in everywhere, when they have a press conference crowing about the great economy they created, well, you're a candidate. You say, I'm sorry, and have the press conference down the street an hour later and say, I'm sorry, actually, you had nothing to do with that. That was my party who did it. You voted against it. If you're not running, that person gets to claim credit. No one ever says anything to rebut it. So it becomes almost a self-fulfilling problem that you're not going to have a message in these places if you're not running. And in the end, so much of the message about politics comes through campaigns themselves. Um, so, yeah, you got to get out there and make the case. And by making the case, you also you also at least add some balance to the message as opposed to having it be completely one-sided. Well, David Pepper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Of course. I always enjoy talking to you. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with David Pepper, who served as chairman of the Democratic Party of Ohio from 2015 to 2021 and is the author of a number of books, including A Simple Choice, The Voter File, and Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking further into the politics of abortion and how a large majority of Americans don't want a tyranny of the minority infringing on their freedom, imposing their religious dogma in the name of religious freedom. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Amanda Marcotte, who's a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. And the latest article at Salon is Voters Aren't Fooled by Republican Lies on Abortion, and Democrats Are Benefiting at the Ballot Box. Welcome to Background Briefing, Amanda Marcotte. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks. And I guess what happened yesterday in Ohio reinforces and supports what you're saying, right? This was a ballot about abortion, and the anti-abortion people were absolutely trounced, right, by 13 points. Yeah. And, you know, polling data suggested that was going to be true. And I think, you know, obviously Republicans can read a poll so their strategy from the very beginning was to do whatever they can to get people to think that they were voting on something other than what they were voting on. So they rewrote the ballot initiative to write lies into the ballot initiative, which is kind of wild and should have been illegal. They ran ads that lied about what the ballot initiative was. They told people it was about sex changes for junior high school kids and stuff, which was all lies. And it didn't matter because <laughs> it ended up, issue one ended up winning by about the same margin that you would have gotten on a poll asking Ohio voters how they feel about the, uh, the right to choose. So in other words, in spite of all these sort of dirty tricks and misinformation, people showed up and it's normally not easy to get people to vote in these off-year elections. Nevertheless, they came out in full force. So is this a harbinger, do you think, for 2024? I mean, uh, there's no way in the world that, you know, you have the Republicans are running an autocrat and a kleptocrat for president, and a theocrat now is the Speaker of the House. And by the way, the House just voted today to subpoena Hunter Biden and Biden's brother James, and the new House Speaker is now going ahead with an impeachment of Biden. So that's what they're all about. But do you think that this issue is going to carry through 2024? And given that Biden's poll numbers aren't good, how do you see it playing out? I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about that. I, I really don't. I'm, a, I'm afraid at this point with all the pessimism to make a 
prediction end up being wrong. And then everybody just wants to dunk on me for the next five years. But despite my better angels, I'm going to say this. We have been seeing high turnout election after high turnout election of Americans who do not like MAGA. They do not like abortion bans. They do not like Donald Trump. And all Republicans can counter with is lying and more lying and then trying to use lies to sort of create this false equivalence. So, you know, the whole point of the Hunter Biden thing is not to get people to vote for Trump. They know people aren't going to vote for Trump. It's to get Biden voters to feel like everybody's corrupt. So just stay home. Right. They're going to they're going to try to create a false equivalence between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And unfortunately, that kind of BS worked in 2016. People were ready to believe emails was the same thing as a million Trump scandals. Every single one was worse than Hillary Clinton's sometimes C minus email security management practices, (laughs) you know, but because it was sort of you know, the Trump campaign was pushing on an open door, which is the all politicians are corrupt thing. So, you know, they were able to turn it into a wash issue. And that's obviously the strategy now. I'm not saying it won't work because it it very well could. People should be aware it could work and do everything they can to push back on people in their lives that are sprouting right-wing propaganda talking points. Um, But... I do think that the abortion issue has done something that very few other issues can do, which is remind people that there are stakes in elections, um, that it does affect your life. And, you know, I do think the good news is that there's literally a bazillion clips of Donald Trump taking credit for overturning Roe versus Wade that Biden can blanket the airwaves with. So, I don't think the abortion issue is going away because it it is a stand-in for the like larger like sense that there are stakes in elections, that it's not just all about my team versus your team. And so I, I think that there is a not there's a very good chance that Biden is gonna win. I think that I'd give it better than even odds. Well, I'm sort of responding in a way to the New York Times Siena poll that has Trump ahead in in five of the six swing states. And the basic Republican strategy, if you could call it that, is a tyranny of the minority. Well, that's the the reality of Republican rule, a tyranny of the minority. And anything that gets the majority up and active is obviously needed. And it looks like the abortion issue is the driving force at this point. Is that how you see it? Yeah, it's not just abortion. I think that a lot of people in the punditry are confused by this because it seems to be moving votes of people that um, don't get abortions. <laughs> like women of reproductive age are only a percentage of the population, right? Um, now, once you kind of balloon that out to people who care about somebody in their life who's a woman of reproductive age, okay, now you've got a bit of a bigger voting pool. But You know, I don't think it's just that. I think that the abortion issue is connected with January 6th. It's connected with having a Speaker of the House who uh, makes his son monitor his porn use. I think it connects with the book bans that we're seeing across the country, which is at a certain point, Americans are like, these people are nuts. And it's not wise to let absolutely nuts people run our government. And so the only question for me is like how much power that's going to have in a year. The good news is Trump's not getting any less nuts. The people following him are are kind of spinning out. They aren't taking the the losses in Tuesday's election very well. And so I I think we're going to actually see more doubling down and they're just going to keep doubling down on MAGA until I don't know. They they are just very determined that MAGA is the path to victory. And it's going to take many more election cycles before they get that it's not. And I know everyone's exhausted. I'm exhausted. But we're just going to have to hang in, keep voting until they just give up. 
Well, I think that the bottom line, though, with people like Mike Johnson uh, is that they talk about religious freedom, but it's their freedom to impose their religious views on us or on the majority. And that, do you think that's what people find offensive? Yeah, I think hopefully, I, I really, I flinch every time I hear some anchor use the term religious freedom when what they mean is religious oppression, because that's obviously what Christian nationalism is. Sure. I'm sure that on some level, Christian nationalists feel that their freedom to control other people is being taken from them, just as slave owners felt like their freedom to own other people was being taken from them, just as, you know, a lot of, you know, male chauvinist pigs felt like their freedom to control women was being taken from them. But that is not actually the definition of freedom. The definition of freedom is that I am free and you are free. And for me to be free, that means you can't control me. And I think most people get that. And so, you know, I, of course, I, w I wish that the media did not buy right wing framing that is confusing on this issue by design. But I also think that most of us live in the real world. We know um, we know a, a religious zealot when we see one. We know that someone like Mike Johnson is just the American Ayatollah and like, you know, and people are reacting appropriately. Well, he's the Ayatollah with a pleasant smile, not the scowl of the Ayatollah Khomeini, right? I mean, he's got Trump to give us the Ayatollah scowl. <laughs> right. But in, when you talk about framing, though, the abortion issue has always been poorly framed in this much as one side is pro-life, which sounds pretty good. The other side is pro-choice, which sounds somewhat frivolous. Is that a problem? I mean, I think it it, it was always interesting to me because before the overturn of Roe versus Wade, the pro-life framing was effective as a PR strategy, right? People don't want to say, no, I'm not pro-life, because like you said, that sounds bad. So when polling data would ask people if they were pro-life or pro-choice, it would show like huge numbers of people saying they're pro-life. Well, it turns out like about half those people almost are pro-choice. With abortion rights in place, it cost them nothing to say they were quote unquote pro-life. And it was, they, you know, it was just all about the way it was framed. But this gets back to what I was saying about brass tacks, right? I think people are realizing when we're a year out from the election. So we're in this zone where people are being pulled on bad information. They don't know who the candidates are going to be. They don't, um, a lot of them don't believe Trump is actually going to be the nominee, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so when things become real, I think we might see a real shift in that polling data. And I think a real shift in how people understand the stakes of the election. Well, we're already learning that since the Dobbs decision, that the number of kids in foster care has gone up. And when these pro-life people talk about pro-life, what kind of life is the child that the 16-year-old is forced to have, or the mother with a bunch of kids that she can't support at any rate, having an extra kid? I mean, I never understood what their sense of pro-life is, because it seems like a moral free ride that they get to be self-righteous but not responsible for the outcome of their religious zealotry. I mean, who doesn't want a moral free ride, right? A, a chance to feel self-righteous without actually doing anything good in the world, right? Um, I feel like a lot of right-wing politics are that. But also, like, pro-life is an early example of this tendency on the right to use um, extremely ridiculous Orwellian language to describe who they are. Like, you know, Moms for Liberty sounds good, but it's actually a group that wants to take away your right to read books, right? <laughs> they do this over and over. Alliance Defending Freedom, that sounds good, but actually it's a group that is trying to force Christian nationalism on those of us who don't believe in it. And 
it, that's kind of the sort of thing that they do. And, and I, I actually think that if more people have been paying closer attention to those of us who reported on the anti-choice movement, we would have been less caught with our pants down around the larger MAGA movement because all the strategies that we're seeing used on a large scale now, including this Orwellian language, really originated with the the anti-abortion movement. So is it possible, Amanda, that the pro-choice people could adopt a kind of anti-abortion program in as much as promote contraception? Because the insane and completely hypocritical part of the pro-life people is that they're also against uh, contraceptives and people like Mike Johnson certainly are. And the best way to get rid of abortions is to make contraceptions easily available, even make them cheap and uh, or even for free. Obviously, they're going the other direction with that judge down in Amarillo, Texas, banning uh, mifepristone the morning after pill. But in other words, could could you be pro-contraception? In other words, you know, they have this campaign of harassing women at clinics and the, all the insanity that they do. But I'm just wondering about a proactive campaigns of making contraception easily available and, and cheap, and if not free. And I likewise, really, go ahead. I want to challenge the premise of this question because the premise is that the pro-choice movement does not do this, and that's not true at all. I mean, the pro-choice movement are the people that made uh, Obamacare coverage of contraception happen. The pro-choice movement are the people that fund Planned Parenthood that got Title IX passed so that we have affordable contraception. They're the people that made sure that Medicaid covers contraception. The pro-choice movement has always promoted contraception. Um, it's a myth that they don't, one promoted by the right. And unfortunately, the media has utterly failed in treating contraception like it just happened, as opposed to something that groups like Planned Parenthood, um, Center for Reproductive Rights, NARAL, et cetera, et cetera, have been actively promoting and defending for decades. You know, I, in fact, the only reason that contraception got legalized in the first place was Planned Parenthood, uh, that Planned Parenthood sued or basically set up a situation where they had one of their directors get arrested for distributing contraception in 1963. And she sued and took it all the way to Supreme Court and got the right to contraception secured. So, you know, this is something that has always been tied to the abortion rights fight. And you know, I, as a pro-choice journalist, I've been doing my best to sort of highlight how much the anti-abortion movement is also attacking contraception. They're trying to take it away. They they try to redefine things like the birth control pill as abortion so they can ban it under abortion bans, things like that. But no one wants to hear that. They think that's hysterical. They think that it's overstated. They don't understand this history. And so we're kind of in this like spiral where it's very difficult to get people to know what the fight's really about because they, they don't want to believe it. I, I mean, that's why everyone was so surprised when abortion was banned. Feminists were warning everybody for decades that this was coming and no one believed us. And here we are. Well, but how, how do you win that battle then? How do you nail these people as the hypocrites that they are? that if you want to get rid of abortion and stop trying to ban contraception, how counterintuitive that is, how, how insane that is. You know, I'd love to see an ad saying, okay, you want to get rid of abortion, make contraception freely available. And you're saying that I'm missing the point here that I somehow, I haven't noticed they all have, this stuff. They have been saying this. I mean, uh -huh. again, the, the affordable care act covers contraception copay free because of all the lobbying done by Planned Parenthood and other pro-choice activists for decades. This is something they fought for decades. And yes, what was the first thing that the right did? They sued to make sure that women couldn't get their contraception covered by their health insurance. And they won at the Supreme Court. Right, Hobby Lobby, right. Yeah, yeah. People have been doing everything they mm -hmm. can to highlight this. I mean, mm -hmm. right. You know, at a certain point, it's just like 
I, I just don't I either. The, I think the mainstream media could do a lot more to, to educate the public about this, but there's also the situation where a lot of people in our country just don't think the bad thing's going to happen until it's too late. Right. Well, I guess that's where I come down on the need to educate and the realization, as you point out, people didn't think this would happen, but they should have known this stacking of the Supreme Court, what Leonard Leo and these Federalists and, and Opus Dei zealots are all about. And it's happened. Yeah, I mean, Clarence Thomas and his decision on the Dobbs, in his opinion on the Dobbs decision, openly invited um, r religious right groups to make law, like come up with lawsuits so that he can reban contraception as well. So they are they aren't even hiding what they're up to in a lot of ways. Right. Well, Amanda, I thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Amanda Marcotte, who's a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America and Truth Itself. And the latest article at Salon is Voters Aren't Fooled by Republican Lies on Abortion and Democrats Are Benefiting at the Ballot Box. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining how much Biden is losing the Arab-American vote because of his stance on the war in Gaza and the display of Islamophobia in the House with the censure of the only Palestinian-American in Congress. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Wajahat Ali, who is a New York Times contributing writer based in Washington, D.C., a columnist at the Daily Beast, and the co-host of the Democracy-ish podcast, whose latest book is Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. Welcome to Background Briefing, Wajahat Ali. Ian, nice to be talking to you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Wajahat. And Tuesday, the United States House of Representatives voted to censure Democratic Representative from Michigan, Rashida Tlaib. 22 Democrats joined with most of the Republicans, charging her for promoting false narratives. She's the only Palestinian-American in Congress, which she, in a speech, reminded her colleagues of. And it does seem, and many of the Democrats who supported her feel that this was a display of Islamophobia. How does it strike you? It uh, just uh, reveals the continued hazing of the only Palestinian member of Congress, one of the very few Muslims, who, by the way, during her tenure in Congress, was told by Donald Trump to go back to her country, has received numerous death threats, has been mocked and humiliated, has been smeared as a terrorist, and now has security detail because of increased death threats. Right now, as we're talking, more than 10,000 civilians have been killed in the ongoing war in Gaza. You have the only Palestinian American, Rashida Tlaib, trying her best to bring some focus on the humanitarian angle, the fact that people are dying. What is she asking for, Ian? She's asking for a ceasefire. She also is using her privileged position to try to explain to people, hey, for decades, many, not all, but many people who are, who are advocating for Palestinian rights, when we say from the river to the sea, we mean that we want the right for Palestinians to have self-determination. That does not mean to the exclusion of Jews uh, and Israelis. And that could take the form of either two states or one state. Because of that statement, that was, if you will, the excuse for Republicans who have been after her and Ilhan Omar to censure her. And what's really shameful and painful, Ian, is that 22 Democrats, knowing full well the bad faith, bigotry, and Islamophobia, and anti-Semitism of the Republican colleagues, joined Rashida Tlaib, even as Republicans in the past month had said some of the most insane genocidal things about Palestinians. 
Well, one of the Democrats who joined with the Republicans was none other than the minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, who is very much in the pocket of APEC. Well, you said it, not me. But look, the way government works is that interest groups and lobbying groups are very influential. One of the most influential lobbying groups is uh, actually um, ARP. Another one is NRA. Another one is APAC. And the 22 names of the Democrats who voted to throw their own colleague under the bus, uh, all the names were released. And people yesterday also said, huh, look at APAC that has funded many of these people. The American-Israeli Public Action Committee, which, by the way, has every right to do what it does. But in large part, because of this lobbying and this funding, you saw Democrats like Hakeem Jeffries, who knows better, kind of sick Rashida Tlaib to the wolves, right? And you also saw another colleague. I want to show the double standard here for your listeners, Ian. Uh, Representative Gottheimer, a Democrat, uh, according to Politico magazine, last month, he openly told his Democratic colleagues that all Muslims are to blame for Hamas. All Muslims. No censure. As this has been happening, we saw Brian Mast, a Republican, who cosplayed an IDF costume before Halloween, and then on the House floor compared Palestinian civilians to Nazis and said, hey, there were civilians, uh, Nazis, but we don't call them civilians. No censure. You saw Lindsey Graham use genocidal language, a religious war, right? Said he doesn't care about the civilian death toll. Uh, you saw uh, Representative Miller, who said that he wants to turn Gaza into a parking lot. And then you, got, you saw Senator Cotton, who said he wants to be, see it turn into rubble. No censure. Nothing. We don't talk about it. But the double standard is that Rashida Tlaib has to police every word and emotion. And even then, that's not enough. And they censured her. This has not gone unnoticed to a global audience. It has not gone unnoticed. And Brian Mass, the, the Republican from Florida, actually served in the IDF um, yeah. and, and wore and a he uniform wore, I mean, the to fact Congress. that he wore a costume and compared Palestinian civilians to Nazis, to Nazis, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Well, when you mentioned uh, a little while ago, Wahajat Ali, that uh, Donald Trump told Congresswoman Tlaib to go back to the country where she came from, well, she doesn't come from a country. Isn't that the problem, that Palestine is not a country? <laughs> well, that's too, yeah. Well, there you see, you are a sharp host, more sharp than most. Uh, first and foremost, uh, all of the people that he told to go back were U.S. citizens born and raised in this country. The only one who wasn't is Ilhan Omar, who came as a refugee, but she's also American, American citizen. But that's, that's exactly when people say, you Palestinians, you go back to your, your country, and they'd be like, we would love to. We are an occupied people. Gaza is occupied. The West Bank is occupied. East Jerusalem is occupied. Please give us a country. Let's do two states. Let's do one state, but make us equal citizens. Please. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we're, we've been doing. That's what we've been resisting is the occupation. And our dream is to have self-determination. And so it just shows that rank bigotry, right, Ian? Because what's been happening is that every Palestinian is a Muslim, is Hamas, is Hezbollah, is Islamic Jihad. Every Palestinian, according to Netanyahu, is Amalek. And for your listeners who don't know what Amalek is, this is the language that last week Benjamin Netanyahu used to describe all Palestinians. A biblical reference, the enemy of the Jews, that the Bible commands to completely decimate and kill. So he says our enemy is the Palestinians who are the Amalek. The commandment, again, is to kill all of them and children of darkness. When you flatten all these people, you see seeing their humanity, and you don't see kids being killed, 4,000 kids, what you see is, quote-unquote, collateral damage terrorists. And when you see Rashida Tlaib, you don't see a Muslim-American congresswoman. You see, quote-unquote, Hamas and terrorists. And we see this in full display with the way that she and Ilhan Omar have been marginalized, targeted, and attacked by Republicans, and now also Democrats. Well, the reference there to the Book of Samuel that Netanyahu brought up in that speech a couple of weeks ago, I mean, the passage says, not just kill the women and the children, but kill the camels, the donkeys, the dogs, the cats, the chickens, you name it. I mean, it lists this whole it's genocidal pure list. Pure annihilation. Yeah. No, it's pretty clear where he's coming from. So what are the electoral consequences, do you think, of uh, what's happening now? Because the Democrats could lose the state of Michigan, which is a key swing state. And already, of course, the New York Times had this poll saying that Trump was ahead in five of the six swing states, so Michigan being one of them. So what do you make of the restive nature of Arab Americans, particularly in the state of Michigan? 
it's not just Arabs. It's not just Muslims. It's not just Palestinians. It's it's a lot of Democrats, a lot of young folks in particular. If you're reading the polls, if that Biden's poll numbers have dropped in the past month for what seems like to be an unconditional support for Israel's and Netanyahu's nonstop ongoing war that has killed 10,000 people. And especially in Michigan, which is a swing state, you have about 200,000 plus uh, Arab American voters. And, it, you know, Wayne County is very decisive. Wayne County went red and Trump won in 2016 and Wayne County went blue and Biden won. So it's something that Democrats shouldn't take for granted. And I could tell you on the Muslim WhatsApp, the Muslim streets, uh, Arab American streets, there's profound pain, disappointment. And the word I keep using, uh, hearing is betrayal. They feel betrayed by uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats right now in power. The, the fact that they don't even call for a ceasefire, the fact that they don't see this level of concern and empathy, the fact that they're throwing Rashid Tlaib under the bus, the fact that Israel, an ally, just got $14 billion and has used it to kill 10,000 people, no censure, but they'll go after Rashid Tlaib. And I can tell you that so many of them right now are on the fence. They're not stupid. And th I think this is what your listeners really need to understand. They know how bad Trump is. They heard what Ryan Zinke said about the call to deport all Palestinians. They know that uh, Donald Trump is the guy who said, I think Islam hates us. But what they're saying is you're asking me to vote either between a fascist, Donald Trump, or you want me to be complicit and genocide. And I know Donald Trump is horrible, so I won't vote for Trump, but I can't bring myself to vote for Biden. And my fear then is a depressed vote that the majority of Arab Americans and African Americans will come out. But will it be a depressed vote? And we'll see in a year, Ian. But I do think as this war keeps going on and if we sit there and bear hug uh, Netanyahu and, and support him. And as we see more humanitarian disasters and crisis and war crimes uh, erupt over the next couple of months, I think this might hurt. And this is, you know, you saw the polls right now in those swing states. Trump is beating uh, Biden. I would not take Muslims, Arabs and young people for granted, especially when it comes to the war in Gaza. I wouldn't. And what do you make of the efforts underway in Qatar with the U.S. Uh, government negotiating with Qatar, which in turn has some sway with Hamas, even though there may be a division between the Hamas representatives abroad and the military wing inside Gaza itself that's engaged in the war with the IDF? Nevertheless, it does seem that there is an effort underway for a three-day pause not a ceasefire, but a three-day pause, which doesn't seem likely. But what do you make of it? Well, I mean, look, uh, Qatar, which hosts a, a U.S. base, right, a huge presence of U.S. armed forces in the Middle East, also uh, hosts Hamas leadership. And so when we ask for a ceasefire, and the majority, by the way, your listeners need to know, a majority of Americans, Republicans, Independents, and Democrats want a ceasefire. They're seeing the brutality and they're like, why is this happening? Why are children being killed? Why am I seeing these images? You know, when the IDF, I think it was two days ago, uh, admitted that out of the 10,000 civilians killed, only 60 were Hamas operatives, you see a lot of people saying, let's do a ceasefire. And the ceasefire needs to come and uh, uh, in, in lead to... Uh, not just humanitarian aid, but the release of hostages. So the reason why they're pushing Khadr, and I think that's the reason why it's smart, is that they're hoping behind the scenes that Arab nations can push uh, and influence uh, Hamas uh, to give up some hostages, right? They can make some diplomacy on the back end and then gives Israel uh, some space and time, I hope, uh, to not continue its bombardment and then allows uh, United States... Uh, to be seen as a, a responsible party that has not greenlit what many people are are uh, are seeing, I think, accurately as genocidal policies of the Netanyahu government. So you're going to need this coalition of Arab nations, Israel, uh, well, calm, cool heads in Israel, but right now we have Netanyahu and the United States to use its leverage to make sure that there is a ceasefire, hopefully, or a pause, that hostages are released, and then I do think Hamas's days are numbered, but. Netanyahu has not given a plan yet uh, as to how he's going to actually kill Hamas and who's going to actually govern after Hamas. He did say it's going to be Israel. So if the occupation continues, guess what's going to happen, Ian? There'll be something new, another Hamas, and the cycle will repeat. You have to end the occupation. Well, apparently Hamas wants a ceasefire and then they release the hostages. And Netanyahu wants 
the hostage is released and then there'll be a ceasefire. So obviously they're at loggerheads, but it may well be a deliberate stalemate. Um, well, it, well, it might be a deliberate stalemate for Netanyahu because, as we know, he's deeply unpopular. There were protests against him. Reports have come out that the longer the war goes on, the better it is for him to stay in power. The families of the hostages are very pissed off at Netanyahu and are protesting because they're like, what are you doing to release the hostages? From his own words, he said, I want destruction. From his own you know, military, uh, the defense ministers have said they will make sure everything is destroyed, that they will turn Gaza into rubble. From the bombs that have been dropped and the indiscriminate killing, it doesn't seem to me that Netanyahu cares a lot about the hostages. I don't know about you, Ian, but that doesn't seem to be uh, top of mind. And then when Hamas hears that we're going to destroy you no matter what, there's going to be destruction, then Hamas is probably going to say, like, well, we have this leverage, this bargaining chip of the hostages, but if they're going to kill the hostages, then we're going to double down as well. So what the ceasefire hopefully can accomplish with some cool heads and especially the pressure exerted by United States is it hopefully, hopefully, hopefully forces Netanyahu to at least talk to Hamas and get a prisoner exchange, a prisoner swap, at least release the hostages. But for right now, from what we've seen and from what we've heard, he wants to go scorched earth. And this is why the families of the hostages are protesting outside of Netanyahu's house. Well, as far as I can tell, the the IDF's military strategy is to uh, blow up all of the fuel that they can find that uh, Hamas is using to fuel generators that then bring oxygen in the air into the tunnels. So if you succeed in cutting off the air, you will also uh, asphyxiate the uh, hostages as well. But just in the last couple of minutes, uh, there are, according to the 2020 election, there are nearly 1.1 Muslim voters in the United States, according to the Pew Research, and there are about 58 8 million Jews in the U.S. Um, so obviously Biden is trying to navigate both, uh, not lose both or lose one or the other. Is that possible, do you think? I mean, what should he do in order uh, to, you know, to cut the baby in half or whatever? Uh, not be genocidal, not be complicit in war crimes, not align himself with Netanyahu, who is deeply popular, unpopular in Israel, and lead. Use the United States leverage to actually push its friend Israel to do the right thing. Look, if you have a friend and they're drunk, you don't give them the keys to the car so they can crash. You take the keys away. And what we've seen is that U.S. pressure has actually worked. We've heard from Israeli officials say that they did a humanitarian pause because U.S. pressured them, right, initially, to get some humanitarian aid. Excuse me, not the pause. They also said that they turned back the Internet uh, once the United States uh, exerted some pressure. So United States and Biden in particular have a huge role here to exert some of their pressure with their special relationship with Israel to make sure that they don't go along with Netanyahu's genocidal plans. Because as we have seen, Ian, this does not just affect Palestinians and Israelis. This is also affecting the region. And we have seen there's a spike in both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. And the last thing I'll say is that many Jews are the one leading the call for the ceasefire. Many Jews are the ones criticizing Netanyahu and his war. They took over the Statue of Liberty in America. They took over Grand Central Station. So it's important not to conflate all Jews with Israel. A lot of Jews, most Jews, both in here and in Israel, hate Netanyahu. So the sooner that Netanyahu resigns, the sooner that he is weakened, maybe, just maybe, we can get to some sort of a ceasefire. And of course, also, if Hamas leadership is degraded, hopefully the Palestinians have a pathway towards self-determination. But that means you have to end the occupation. If Biden really wants to lead Ian, what he should do is use his leverage to convince Israel to end the occupation of Palestinians. Well, Wajahad Ali, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Wajahad Ali, who's a New York Times contributing writer based in Washington, D.C., and a columnist at the Daily Beast and a co-host of the Democracy-ish podcast, whose latest book is Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.